Revisiting some of the best games of this year with some of the best guests in the show's history. I'm Johnny Kong. Welcome to my favourite game of 2016. Hello. You look nice. Well, I say that, but I can't see. But hey, it is words of encouragement. Anyway, welcome to My Favourite Game of 2016. Last year, we did My Favourite Game of 2015, which was meant to be a one-off special. But because there's been a serious lack of episodes from the show since Season 4 ended in August, which I'll explain in part at the end of the show, and because doing this first time was fun last year, I brought it back for another year. Hooray! If you didn't listen last year, and if you didn't, I suggest you go check it out after we're done here, to catch you up on the premise, I've gathered up guests from across all four seasons of my favourite game to talk of their favourite game this year in bite-sized form, skewing the usual format of talking of their favourite game ever over a full episode. Seasons 1, 2, 3 and 4 are represented, and you'll even hear someone who hasn't been on the show yet, but will be next year. Stay tuned for that near towards the end of the show. 2016 has been a very, very bad year. It's been a heinous year, let's be honest. Brexit, President Trump, the internet continuing to be an absolute cesspit of shit, and countless celebrity deaths. God willing, I've not just junked it, and we don't have one final big one after this goes out. But if there is one out that 2016 has excelled at, it's gaming. We've encountered many unique experiences over the year, some incredible geek out moments, be it in a game or a certain game reveal, or in Nintendo's case, a unique new hardware reveal, and the arrival of VR to a massive audience, with the release of Rift, The Vive, and PlayStation VR available to a forward-facing public, and, most importantly, amazing games. This end-of-year special is dramatically different from the one we had a year ago, in terms of the diversity of games on show. Last year, during my favourite game of 2015, we had 16 different games discussed, it was released over the course of 2015. This year, for the special, that's been half to eight. But that's okay. It's a shining example of how some games, more than others, have stood the test of time this year to be someone's favourite game of the year. An FPS on par with some of the best in its genre, and possibly one of the best FPS levels ever. An indie gem which takes its cues from themes of friendship, grief, and more. An action game which improved a lot from its first outing four years ago, continuing its influence on the stealth genre. A VR experience that has more in common with Valve's last red letter day in 2011 than it may think. A dark tale of mystery and intrigue under the cloud of a somewhat dystopian future, in what is possibly the consensus indie game of the year. A trilogy climax from one of the best RPG series in recent times. A series given seemingly fresh life having last had a jeopardising product launch in 2012, and a game 10 years in the making. And no, not the one which once had Versus in its name. So to kick off this special episode of my favourite game, here's Andrew Smith of Tango Fiesta developer Spilt Milk Studios to sum up a good chunk of 2016 in gaming, and in turn, talk of his favourite game of this year. Hello, this is Andrew Smith from Spitmark Studios and I'm recording my 
favourite game for 2016? Um, it's been a bit of an odd year because I've been so busy. Uh, my most played game has probably been uh, the Command & Conquer 14 pack. Uh, for some reason I went on a bit of a retro binge with that and I've been enjoying that most lunchtimes at work. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean I want to give a shout out to, to a whole bunch of games that I've really enjoyed. I haven't really decided on my favourite yet. And uh, this is all with the caveat that I haven't played Last Guardian yet. I don't own Res Infinite and I don't own Stardew Valley and I have a feeling one of those might have been the uh, the winner. But, um, I mean, I've played all kinds and it's been a wonderful, wonderful year, um, especially for some really polished indie stuff. So things like Abzu, which is a gorgeous underwater adventure story-driven game. We've got Firewatch. We've got uh, The Witness, which is the first game I've played through from start to finish with my, with my girlfriend. Um, which is, you know, really difficult, really interesting, really intriguing, with a few sort of key flaws that really bugged me too much for it to to get the uh, the title. Um, Overwatch, never played enough online to really appreciate it. Uh, Inside, fantastic game. Um, got got a few annoying little quirks again, but uh, but absolutely wonderful, supreme atmosphere, beautiful storytelling. Uh, Starbound, uh, Seraph. Uh, Street Fighter Five, Doom, um, those all get shout outs. But the the real big ones, uh, Super Mario Run, I can't really can't really give it the award because I haven't played it all and it's too recent. Um, no Man's Sky, I was really looking forward to, and if I was to just give like an achievement award, I think I'd give that to it. Um, Uncharted Four, fantastic game, really enjoyed it except for one particular bit with exploding, let's say, mannequins. For anyone who hasn't played it, anyone who has, you'll know the bit I'm talking about. Oh, boy. Um, but, yeah, cracking achievement again. Um, beautiful game. But if I'm honest, it's got to be between Dark Souls 3 and Titanfall 2. Um, bit mainstream of me, I know, but there you go. Um, Res Infinite, I genuinely think, would be my favourite. I've played one level of it at GDC. It's absolutely incredible in VR. Um, but uh, also, I guess it's sort of a re-release, maybe. Um, but but anyway, so Dark Souls three and Titanfall two, and I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go for Titanfall two, I think. Acknowledged. Stand by for Titanfall. terms of my favourite moments, my favourite uh, game playing experience I guess was uh, was just slamming through the single player campaign of Titanfall 2, it's so polished and on point, like I can't think of a single thing that I would do differently, I can't think of a single bit that annoyed me, I can't think of a single time the controls let me down, uh, I can't think of a single corner I didn't turn where something exciting was happening and uh, just the sheer thrill of it, absolutely fantastic. I mean, of course, there's that level. Um, I won't go into details, but it's it's that's a real <laughs> eye opener. But just uh, the the people people more eloquent than me have said it before. They they have a, it's a Nintendo esque ability to just like pick up an idea, run with it for a well, wall run with it, shall we say, for a, for a level, and then just throw it away and do something else. And it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the story was like 
good enough. Do you know what I mean? And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Like it, it didn't try and get in the way. It's not trying to tell some big morality tale. It's just a good rollicking story to drive the action forward. Um, and I remember the yeah one one of the most emotional moments in games when I realised what the uh, the big baddie corporation were doing with its uh, with its with its uh, factory. Uh, I mean, I I just I couldn't believe it, and I and I genuinely was in a really stressful, like worried, like fearful place during the the fight immediately after that. Ah, but yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but for me, Titanfall 2 all the way. Much love. I'm Dan Pierce, and my favourite game of 2016 is Titanfall 2. This year, I've often felt disappointed by some of the games I've been most excited for. I don't want to name names or be too negative, so I won't, but after playing Titanfall 2's public beta in autumn, I was sure that it was going to join that pile. Uh, it felt too twitchy, the time to kill was too short, and the spawning just felt bad for some reason. To me, Titanfall 2's beta felt like it had upset a lot of the progress that the incredible original had pioneered. Titanfall 1 blended Quake-style body propulsion and hip-firing with Call of Duty's tight controls and feedback. If you were smart, no one could get the drop on you, and there was nearly always a way to outplay opponents with quick thinking and finesse. Comparatively, Titanfall 2's beta felt cluttered and unfair. There were fewer opportunities to move freely without being instantly shot dead, and the speed versus power dynamic between Titans and pilots felt diminished, with Titans wiping me out the instant I was outdoors. I was almost ready to write the game off, but a few weeks later the reviews started to filter in. I spend pretty much all day every day on games Twitter, and I caved after about a week of reading constant praise for Titanfall 2. I figured that, if nothing else, if I picked it up I'd be able to figure out why the effect and cause mission was as stellar as people were saying. I stopped just short of finishing the campaign in a single sitting, only putting it down so I could sleep and then immediately pick it back up again. It's the most foul-feeling single-player campaign since Portal 2, and hands down the best FPS campaign I've played since the original Modern Warfare. It's perfectly paced, outright refusing to let you be bored with its set pieces and its array of creative tricks, and it elevates a cliched plot with a rock-solid structure and meaningful interactions, and it does so with brevity and charm, creating one of the most satisfying game stories I've played in quite some time. Each chapter brings its own unique quirk, expanding on a mechanic and dismissing it before it can become too familiar. Each of the game's bosses leaves an impression in a way that feels most reminiscent of a Metal Gear Solid game, and it, without a doubt, deserves to join the pantheon of best campaigns ever put to gaming, and if you play it for one reason, it should be that. However, they did fix the multiplayer too. Uh, like, I don't know if it's because I became more familiar with the game through the campaign, or whether it's down to what I'm sure was literally thousands of small tweaks, but Titanfall 2 is an exceptionally good multiplayer game, delivering me exactly what I wanted when the game was first announced. It's smart, it's responsive, it's fast, and importantly, there's almost always a way to get out of the line of fire and get the drop on someone else. I've not even touched Battlefield 1 since Titanfall 2 came out, despite enjoying both immensely. It's dulled other shooters for me in the way that Dark Souls dulled RPGs for me. It's bloody great, and frankly, it's too good for a year like 2016.
I'm Caitlin Tremblay, and my favourite game of 2016 is Free. Last year we had a few games focused on friendship as a big core aspect of its storytelling. One game that stood out on top of that pile was the game that ended our special last year, Life is Strange, which got a physical box release at the start of this year. Oxenfree from Night School Studio picked up that mantle as it focused on four characters and the intertwined relationships they have for the main character of Alex, whilst dealing with themes of grief, friendship and more in a coming-of-age story that features overtones of creepy supernaturalism. As someone who has yet to play Oxenfree as a recordingist, with my love of Life is Strange, it was my game of the year last year after all, considering I've seen some people bat around Life is Strange comparisons to it, this feels like something I could get into. In listening to Caitlin's reasoning for why she chose Oxenfree as her favourite game of 2016 before producing this special, I'm now going to pick it up the first chance I get. Don't believe me? Here's Kate on it. She sells the game big time. Oxenfree is gorgeous. It is smart. And it is incredibly creepy. All of the characters feel like real characters. It revolves around Alex, her newfound stepbrother, her best friend, the girl her best friend is in love with, and her biological brother's girlfriend, and their last attempt to have fun before some move away to college. Fun which happens to be on a deserted, haunted island. So my kind of fun. And make no mistake about it, this deserted, haunted island is absolutely, fundamentally terrifying. Oxenfree uses sound superbly and has a distinct, stylized, somber art style to effectively put the player on edge constantly. I think it's so creepy in part because the characters are so good. The voice acting in Oxenfree is some of the best I have ever heard. They feel alive. Their giggles, their friendly jabs at each other, their earnest reaching outs for sympathy and understanding, and their anger at betrayal all feel so real. And this is part of what makes teen horror movies so good. When your friend group starts to dissolve at the seams, you're not just being hunted by something evil. You're being hunted by something evil without the support and safety of your closest friends. Teen horror movies are always about friendship as much as they are about being massacred. So yeah, Oxenfree is horrifying, and it is best played at night with the sound very high up. Horror games are my bread and butter, and this game scared me. I even played it during the day, and it still scared me. But surprisingly, it's not the scariness of the game that makes it my favorite game of 2016. It's the emotion in it. The main emotional thrust of the game is Alex dealing with a grief that few people should go through the death of somebody similar in age who they care about deeply. And while Oxenfree is absolutely about a haunted island and radio frequencies being tapped into by angry, vengeful spirits, it is also about mourning and trying to figure out how to move on in the wake of death. And I think that's it for me. Oxenfree is about grief. And not just individual grief, but collective grief. How does a group of friends mourn the loss of somebody together? The answer is, by talking to each other. By supporting each other. After the loss of a friend, emotional tensions are high in a group of friends. It can be exhausting. It can be painful. But collective healing also gives you the most power and strength. Having been through this myself as a teenager, I can say for certain, mourning together and healing together is a tumultuous but empowering experience. And the main mechanic of Oxenfree is just that. Dialogue. Yes, you move around and explore the island, find notes, and figure out the truths behind some terrifying mysteries. But while you're doing all of this, everything is driven by dialogue. So much so that one of the achievements in the game is to do an entire playthrough without speaking, except when forced to by key cutscenes. Having played many first-person shooters on the hardest difficulty, 
I can say for certain that this silent playthrough of Oxenfree was the single most difficult time I've ever had in a video game. Oxenfree is about talking to your friends, and talking to people who remind you of a hurt that you can't process and don't know how to heal from. It is about developing strategies for survival, physical, mental, and emotional, through communication. And it's about fighting and surviving, and doing so with your best friends beside you. Or not, if you want to play the game like a total asshole. Four years ago, Bethesda and Arcane Studios introduced a brand new IP, which harkened back to the good old days of stealth and gaming. Dishonored was an absolute breath of fresh air for the fact that it gave you the freedom to approach a mission in any way you like, and do so with precise planning that would even mesh to get a one or two gameplay systems in the game. But whilst that was the game's main selling point, and it was a hell of a selling point in fact, it wasn't the only one. Dishonored's art direction was incredible, giving off vibes of Thief, not too much of a shock considering Harvey Smith's Ion Storm connections, or Half-Life, which, again, is not too much of a shock when you consider Dishonored's art director was also Half-Life 2's art director, not to mention a fantastic story as well. Dishonored 2 further improves on the core principles of the first game's gameplay, even allowing you to play the game through two characters, Emily Caldwin and the protagonist of the first game, Corvo Atano, that both have different powers from one another as you play through the game's story. You're going to hear from quite a few people on here on why they've picked Arcane's finest game today as their favourite game of this year. So let's start off with someone who is a proper stealth expert, who can nail what makes Dishonored 2 so great. Gunpoint and Heat Signature developer, Tom Francis. I'm Tom Francis, I'm the designer of a game called Gunpoint, uh, Floating Point and Heat Signature and my favourite game of 2016 is Dishonored 2. It's been a really good year for immersive sims slash emergent stealth games, games where you can either avoid enemies or take them out in interesting ways um, and where systems combine to interesting results. Uh, we had a new Desex, we had a new Hitman, uh, both of which are great, and uh, a new Far Cry which is also awesome, but Dishonored 2 is better than all of them because um, it's Actually, a lot of those games have really rich and like interconnected level design, but Dishonored 2 is the one that I've just, I'm on my fourth playthrough now, and every time I'm discovering new stuff, every time um, I'm amazed at how much the levels support what I want to do, and how much they, um, how viable the crazy like playstyle I've come up with is. Um, it's very much a game about having your own style and, and sticking to it, and the game's mechanics and stuff supporting that. And um, a lot of that comes from like the how many paths they've kind of worked into the levels everywhere, but also a lot of it comes from the abilities. And um, 
there are you know uh, direct attack weapons and, and traps and um, special crossbow bolts and stuff but most of it is the magical powers and there are two different characters with two different sets of abilities and the new one Emily has one called Domino which um, I'm obsessed with <laughs> um, where you cast it on several different people and it links their fates so anything that happens to one of them happens to all of them so if you put if you push one back all of them get knocked back in that same direction. If you knock one out, they all get knocked out. If you kill one, they all get killed. And you can do that to... Um, uh, you can do it to two guards, choke one, and then as the other turns around and notices you're choking his friend, he runs towards you, and just as he gets to you, the, his friend passes out, and so he passes out too. You can um, cause it... You can cause them to drown on dry land by linking them to someone else and pushing them into the water. You can pause. You can cause someone to kill themselves as they try and kill an innocent person by throwing them into a wall of light. If you link them before he does that, when the civilian dies in the wall of light, he will be incinerated himself. Uh, and there's just so many cool possibilities of that. Hello, I'm Ed Stern, and my favourite game of 2016 is Dishonored 2. There were an amazing number of really, really good, interesting games that came out during the year, and I think it, it, I should I should play up my indie cred by going for something smaller or, um, or or quirkier, and then thought it would be a bit predictable and kind of established developer to go for something for such a such a big polished product. But it's just. The more I thought about it, the more impressed I was. It's so hard to get that stuff right. They, it, any game, sorry, almost almost any game, is the product of so many different pairs of hands, certainly within a conventional studio system, let's say. And to know how many people had worked on it in so many different disciplines and to get it all in tune. I don't know, environmental narrative, environmental storytelling, it's such a cliche. There was a great uh, Cara Ellison piece about... All it means is just kind of incredibly obvious, on-the-nose, no-subtext graffiti sprayed everywhere. And that often happens because, I mean, it's not just down to the work itself, it's also down to company design and production pipeline design and what you as a studio are going to prioritise. And obviously, with Dishonoured, they've just made making a coherent world for the player uh, it, more than the individual characters and story. I just wanted more of that world, and it was great to get that in, 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 in such a rich way. So that all of the story, all of the dialogue, all of the character design, all of the costume design, all of the weapon design, all of the environments, the levels, the roots, the textures, they're just so in tune. They're so satisfying. It's such a world to wander around. Uh, or slide around, or suddenly appear in the middle of. It, the more I think about it, the more impressed I am. It's so hard to get that stuff right. It's so hard to make all of that stuff and keep it in tune so so that it's mutually supporting and it feels like more than the sum of its parts. And I think there are some very well-made games I've played where I just thought, well, it just feels like, you know, 
loads of portfolios side by side, like, oh, look, here's some great character art, and also here's some great environment art that doesn't necessarily feel it's like it's the same world. I enjoyed Dishonored so much and all the different ways of playing through it to see that just extended further in the sequel and more about the characters who I felt, found I actually cared about a bit more than I thought I would. I was surprised by that. I just think it's an extraordinary piece of work. I think they've... And also just in terms of the state of the art of what games can do and what they can be, there are loads more experimental games. In some ways it's quite conventional, but just... You know, it's just an amazing piece of work. And I think it's the sort of thing that will stand the test of time, partly because it's just not a very common period. or it's, well, no, not period, it's not historical drama. But it just doesn't look like it's set in a computer game. It's full of things I've never seen in a game or in a film, and that's incredibly rare for games, particularly... No, I'm not going to say photorealistic games, because it's a very stylized, illustrated-style game, but, you know, like non-indie games. I uh, am running out of thoughts to have about it because I just want to go and play it again. Yes, Dishonored 2 for me. I think it's just an extraordinary piece of work and I think people will still be thinking it a, a, a really good game in decades to come. My name is Chris Avalon. Uh, I do a lot of writing for RPGs, and my favorite game of 2016 is Dishonored 2. Dishonored 2 is a got a number of great qualities about it, but what I especially liked is that I feel like whenever I get a new weapon or ability, that weapon or ability could almost be an entire game in itself, and. When I got the Outsider's timepiece in Dishonored 2, that was the moment where I took a step back and I was like, wow, this is essentially equivalent of a stealth portal gun. And they could have made a number of titles just on this amazing weapon slash ability all in itself. Um, and I think that's one of the, the hallmarks uh, of Arcane's designs. All their weapons feel like they're not just something that does damage, there's something that you just use strategically. There are ways to help navigate levels. Uh, the upcoming Prey has a lot of good examples of that, too. And I think the only thing that could have made Dishonored 2 even better uh, is if Arcane had the ability to take the open-world weapon design, or it's like the, the sort of open system they have for weapons, and actually apply that to an open world environment like uh, you know the Elder Scrolls series or or Fallout. Seeing those weapons in a world where you can basically go anywhere and do anything, and then you have a bunch of tools like that at your disposal, I think that would be a fantastic game of 2017. Are you listening, Bethesda? Unite those two design methodologies, and you'll have a super clear win. But that's my favorite game of 2016, Designer 2. Check it out. It's cool.
Uh, hello, I'm Chris Donlan. I write for Eurogamer, and my favourite game of 2016 is Budget Cuts. For VR experience, Budget Cuts is a game that, on looking at videos of it, full disclosure, I don't have a Vive, so I've not played it, may have a lot more in common with Portal 2, the last game Valve put out that wasn't Dota 2, sorry, than it may think, not sorry. So to get into why Budget Cuts is such an interesting and unique experience, I asked my friend Chris Donlan if he'd be willing to talk to me again, as he did during my favourite game of 2015 last year, about his choice for his favourite game of the year, and what the future holds in VR. Also, the soundtrack for Budget Cuts seems to be nowhere in sight, so here's the James Bond theme on some sort of loop in its place. So Budget Cuts is, is not a full game, it's a VR demo, but I think it was the most interesting thing I played this year in that um, I played a lot of VR this year and I became quite infatuated with VR for a period and Budget Cuts was definitely the one which was the most I was talking to a friend of mine and he was saying it's the it's the it's the VR game with the most actual kind of game design in it it is a spy game which you infiltrate a an office building and you're sort of working away around cubicles and across rooms and avoiding these robots but there's something about the way they've constructed this world to make the most of room-scale VR. So it's a Vive game, a Vive game, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you walk around a small space, you teleport from one space to another with a sort of a, a, by firing a projectile, which has a bit of physics in it. So it's like lobbing a tennis ball across the room and that opens up another portal where you can move to. So they've solved a load of problems about, project, uh, about traversal in VR games. And then when you're in that world, you have the two Vive controllers, so you're interacting with things, you're picking up grates and pulling them off the wall and poking your head through. Um, combat is hidden. you have like a bunch of knives, which kind of you can you, you, you keep in a storage thing on one hand, and you can pluck them off the storage thing and then lob them at robots. And it's all just really tactile and incredible. Yeah, and it doesn't outstay its welcome. Um, interesting, the people who have made it are now sort of doing a kind of incubation in Valve. So it wouldn't be enormously surprising if this ended up being a Valve published game. I mean, I don't really understand the way Valve thinks. I don't think anyone does. So you never know what's going to happen. But it feels very Valve-ish already in that it's just taken a bunch of complex problems, VR space, how to build a game within VR space. And it's really solved all of them. It's kind of amazing. And it's, uh, even though Vive is a pain and VR is a pain to tell the truth, this is the one game you should try and uh, check out if you're interested in where VR could be going in a best-case scenario. When I first saw the trailer of it, when, I was, when you were telling me that it was budget cuts, it did seem like it did have that Valve feeling. Like It looked slightly aesthetically familiar in ways that reminded me of Portal in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I mean, obviously it does have portals in it. So it has portals as you traverse around. They are, I think they are rimmed with blue light. So there is, there is a lot of kind of cues to pick up from portal. But more than that, it's more just about how the way, if you think back to Half-Life 2, Half-Life 2, lots of games at the time had been experimenting with physics in interesting ways. And Half-Life 2 took that and just made it seem very straightforward. It suggested that it was actually very easy because they'd done a lot of clever thinking about things, you know, and then the result of that was the Gravity Gun and a game which played with physics in an enormously satisfying, direct way, which other games had sort of been groping towards but hadn't been able to master. And I think Budget Cuts is the same thing. It's dealing with your... It's solved a lot of problems about your presence in a game world. 
and it's sort of found a way to make that stuff fun. Everyone I know who's played budget cuts has banged their head on the floor while playing it because there's a moment where you have to look through a gap in a ceiling tile and everyone I know has lost track of where they are and smacked their head on the floor at that point. And I think that feels pretty uh, emblematic of how engrossing this is. You mentioned like budget cuts is a good representation of what VR could be. Like, is there any other games you've played this year that could really push the bounds of what VR is? Like, for me, I, I can recall playing, like, it's not a, a Vive or an Oculus game, but I, I can recall playing Res Infinite on PlayStation VR and think, fuck, like, this was the first game, this was the first time I ever played Res, and already it felt like this was picture perfectly fit for VR. <laughs> See, I haven't played Res, I'd really love to play Res on VR. Um, I love it anyway. It's one of those games that's always felt like it was VR anyway, because the rest of the room would sort of disappear when you were playing it, you were so focused on it. I think. I haven't played any other games like Budget Cuts. You know, Budget Cuts feels... I've played a lot of very interesting VR games. Budget Cuts is the only one which feels like it's come back from five years in the future where a bunch of things have been solved. It's the only one which has that sense of, like, this is a VR product from the future. It's, it's that confident, that sure of itself. Yeah, it's pretty... There's nothing else that really compares to it, for me. In addition to our holiday lineup, we are also investing in new IP, familiar franchises, and continued investment in Xbox Live. I'm excited to share a selection of our games from our 2015 portfolio and beyond. I believe these games highlight the breadth, depth, and diversity of our gaming portfolio. Let's start with a game from an incredible studio. Their first game, was one of my favorite games of all time. It debuted on Xbox 360 and went on to win Game of the Year honors. This is a first look at what they have been working on for the last four years, and it will debut on Xbox in early 2015. With what came before Limbo, there was already anticipation in the air for what was to come next from its Danish developer Playdead. Announced at Microsoft's E3 2014 presser, insights for a showing showed something promising was on the horizon, with its dark undertones, creepy atmosphere, and even dystopian setting. Speaking personally, going by that first trailer, I was already in from what was to come to the game when it was due for release in 2015. But after that trailer, there was complete silence on it for two years. Until...
2016 was our first look at inside in two years. Not only that, it was definitely coming out in 2016. Furthermore, it was out a few weeks after the Microsoft presser at the end of June. Inside's motif was as much a mystery as the game was for the two year period between its revealed trailer and its release. Shown only twice before its release in late June, Playdead's follow up to Limbo, as I made reference to a minute ago, was bleak, dark and dystopian. But even in after finishing the game and knowing the game's major twist, and seriously, you should really go into this game blind not knowing anything about it. It makes the experience that bit more special. There's still an element of it that's still mysterious and curious of it that really doesn't get explained even at the end. Regardless though, for the free and a bit hours you do play it for, Inside has you grabbed. Its atmosphere is incredible, a soundtrack that is just excellent and is a straight up worthy successor to Limbo in every possible way gameplay wise. Honestly, it's a worthy successor to Limbo outright. In a moment, you'll hear from Matthew Reynolds of Eurogamer to explain why he picked Inside as his favourite game of 2016. First though, here's designer at the Chinese Room and recent guest presenter of my favourite game, Catherine Woolley, to explain her reasoning for why it was her favourite game of the year. Hi, I'm Catherine Woolley, I'm a senior designer at the Chinese Room, and my favourite game of 2016 is Inside. I eagerly awaited for Inside since it was announced back at the Microsoft press conference at E3 in 2014. Sure, I had to wait a while for it, but I'm so happy we had to wait, because it wouldn't be the same game if we didn't. Of course, having to compete with Playdead's first title, Limbo, was quite the bar that they set themselves but I feel that they did a great job. The attention to detail in the animations, storytelling and audio are astonishing and I'm so happy it didn't let me down. Inside is one of those games that manages to tell a compelling story through the use of no dialogue or text. It's all through the environment, characters and their animations. And it definitely is an interesting story at that. The puzzles were interesting and felt intuitive and even threw curveballs in to confuse you into thinking the solution at times. My most favourite puzzles and events will spoil your experience. So really, once you finish listening to this episode of My Favourite Game, you should go and buy Inside and give it a play. If you of course haven't done so already. And when you do play it, pay close attention to every moment, meaning every step, every climb, every fall, and your surroundings, because Playdead went the extra mile to add those details, and it just brings it to life and creates an experience like no other. I've been a little saddened by how little awards Inside has actually picked up through the various um, games award shows that have happened this year. I've got my fingers crossed for it to be able to pick up a few more, but I do wonder if enough people have played it, but you can pick it up on Xbox One, PS4, and on PC now. So you've got no excuse not to play it, right? Give it a go.
I'm Matthew Reynolds and my favourite game of 2016 is Inside. So I think when I contributed to this in 2015 with Undertale, I said this was a game that you should go in without hearing much about at all, so it's not a sport for you. And uh, I'm going to be really annoying and say it again, um, because I think Inside is one of those games that you should absolutely play without hearing much about at all beforehand. Probably because you can comfortably play it within like an afternoon, um, but also because it has a lot of like surprising, memorable, um, excellently delivered moments one after another. And uh, having those sport for you would be um, a little unfortunate and it would take away a little from what's in store. So what can I talk about? Uh, I guess, well, the obvious comparison is um, with Limbo, which was Playdead, um, the developer of, of Inside, uh, their previous game, which was released in 2010. And uh, yes, you know, it's a little bit on the nose in terms of it's another side-scrolling platformer with a child facing all sorts of nightmarish things. Uh, but there's no spiders, which is uh, good if people didn't like that, and uh, that might sway people into playing this. As an arachnophobic, thank Christ. Um, but I think Inside, in many ways, is a far superior game, and shows how well uh, Playdead, having already made a really terrific game with Limbo, has got even better at making those kinds of atmospheric, well-designed puzzle platformers. Uh, and I think what Inside does particularly well, more so than any other game this year, actually, um, is that it nails a certain tone and feeling for everything it does, from its audio to its visuals, uh, the feeling of your character's movement, uh, and the animation behavior of many of the weird and kind of unspeakable things that you come across. Uh, and that feeling is one of dread and constantly feeling like you're against the odds. Uh, and while that's kind of a very common thing that you come across in many other games, uh, I think in this one it kind of grips you very tightly, more or less as soon as you start playing, and doesn't let up until the finale. I think it's one that's also very particularly strong at world building, and uh, that wasn't one of Limbo's strongest suits. Um, and while it doesn't have a traditional story per se, it, I did come away thinking a lot about kind of the bizarre things you see, and this universe that it creates, and kind of how it got there, and why all these things were happening. Uh, again, not spoiling much there. I can't really say much else. Um, I was reading. Um, about developers' favourite games earlier on, I think, on PlayStation blog, and David Cage, um, the creator of games like Fahrenheit and Heavy Rain, um, said Inside was one of his favourites, and uh, the word he used to describe it was frictionless, which I think is a really good way of describing how well Inside delivers many of the things it does. So, like narrative, there's very few interruptions or exposition. It's all through kind of like you know the world around you and audio and so on and so forth, um, through two puzzles, um, which do regularly halt your progress, but they're usually very momentary, um, they're always really clever um, things that you have to solve and very little frustration as well. Everything feels like it's just one step away from whatever you're doing and solutions make sense uh, before it just you know thrusts you in another really strange um, situation and you kind of have to do it all over again. Uh, it's got very great pacing uh, and doesn't really let up until the very end. So yeah, um, like with the way I described uh, Undertale last year, um, you know, I've kind of get details. Um, a little on the light side, but um, yeah, it's it's a really terrific game. Uh, if you obviously if you played Limbo, you have a decent idea of what's in store. Um, but even still, I think it builds upon what Limbo was doing with much more sharper focus and execution. Um, so yeah, for all these reasons, that's why Inside is easily my favourite game of 2016.
My name is Tom Bramwell. I work for a digital agency called Greenlit Content, and before that I was Editor-in-Chief of Eurogamer and Head of Writing at Riot Games. And my favourite game of 2016 is Dark Souls 3. What was planned to be a trilogy closer to what has been one of the most popular and influential series of RPGs in recent times, maybe even ever, Dark Souls 3 had a lot riding on it. Dark Souls 2, while still critically successful, was panned by series fans for not being a true Souls game. Souls 3 also saw the return of series creator Hidetaka Miyazaki, who went on to become From Software president since the first Dark Souls game. Not to mention his focus elsewhere last year on PlayStation 4 exclusive Bloodborne. But could Souls 3 live up to that rarity of being a trilogy closer that lived up to anticipation? And could it be a game that was worth existing in the Soulsborne universe? Here's Tom to explain more and why it's his favourite game of this year. Perhaps despite reasons to the contrary. Oh and by the way, apologies for the audio. Even by Tom's admission, it's not the best. Many years ago at Eurogamer, we needed someone to write a Christmas end-of-year piece about From Software's legendary Dark Souls. Everyone else was tied up with their own pieces, so even though I was still stuck in Sen's Fortress, 25 hours into the game but unable to advance, I wrote a crap little love letter to it anyway. I was a total noob. I didn't understand weapon scaling, so I was grinding all these levels and putting them into health and endurance because I thought I just needed to find better weapons, rather than to improve my existing ones. It took me weeks to beat the Capra Demon on my original run, and when I first wrote about the game, I'd never even seen Anor Londo, and was still using the Drake Sword. Since then, I've gotten married, bought a house, changed careers and had two kids, and somehow I've also mastered Dark Souls. That is to say, I can now get to Ornstein and Smo in two or three hours, the Capra Demon barely touches the sides, and I can speedrun Sen's Fortress without swinging my sword. Oh, and my sword isn't a sword, it's a Black Knight Halberd. I still find the games challenging, but my progress is very steady, an unstoppable flow propelled by muscle memory and Seath-like levels of arcane knowledge. Obviously then, I was extremely excited about Dark Souls 3, and have spent most of this year playing it, watching other people playing it, and listening to podcasts about it. And I guess, like a lot of superfans, I feel conflicted about the thing I love. It's my favourite game of the year. It has more character and imagination in one short stretch of level design than most games have in their entirety but I also think it's the worst Souls game I've played. Now, I am no Varty Vidya or Bonfireside chat. My appreciation of these games is generally built on mechanics, art and design. Once I finish them, I then enjoy learning about the lore from people who have passion for that. By the way, the fact that these games have inspired numerous devoted subcultures, like the YouTube Lawsters, is a great illustration of their phenomenal depth. So my original playthrough was pretty much just a wide-eyed run through with my usual favourite weapons and playstyle. As I went, I knew the art of Dark Souls 3 was some of my favourites in the series, but in every other respect I was left wanting. Mechanically, the feel of the game is dramatically different to previous instalments. For me, Dark Souls is about moving slowly into eerie fantasy scenes, shield up and sword ready, gradually learning and then overcoming. Most of the enemies you encounter are slow moving, and will be standing still, just waiting for you, which gives the game a very particular atmosphere. If you can get the jump on them, you can unleash terrible flurries that keep them suppressed until their life bars are extinguished. Dark Souls 3, in contrast, is a game of fast-moving enemies, often spread out in patrols, and changes to a character attribute called Poise, vaguely explained in previous games but crucially important, mean that your attacks are too easily interrupted, so combat becomes much more about dashing around and dodging. Of course, it's a sequel's right to change how things work. I wish more sequels had the guts to do it, rather than serving me reheated concepts. But I don't enjoy this alternative set of ideas nearly as much, 
I feel much more fragile and frantic in combat in Dark Souls 3, even when I know exactly what I'm doing. I also found Dark Souls 3 a much less interesting place to be. There are some great areas in here. I particularly enjoyed the Cathedral of the Deep and the latter sections of Lotharic Castle, but I found nothing to rival Dark Souls' signature areas. As much as I'm not a loster, I think part of the reason the world doesn't work for me is that it goes out of its way to remind you about the first Dark Souls at every turn, but then fails to learn from its example or offer a meaningful alternative. The Siegwood questline is a good example of this, using Siegmire's evocative armour design to stir your emotions, then completely missing the point about what made Siegmire so haunting. The world design of Dark Souls 3 arguably makes the same mistake at much grander scale. It's full of references to the original game, from the Abyss Watchers to the orgy of fanservice beyond Pontiff Sullivan. But whereas the internal logic and spatial consistency of Lordran was legendary, the world of Dark Souls 3 is full of jarring contortions of space and time for which the end of the world narrative feels like a flimsy excuse. The forced teleport that precedes the fight with the Dancer of the Boreal Valley is particularly awkward. The most disappointing thing about this was discovering that there is no grand narrative that ties everything together in the way there was in Dark Souls. Or rather, as the Bonfireside Chat podcast has outlined in fantastic detail over the last few months, it's that there is enough evidence to link just about everything to just about everything else, but not enough to cement any of those ties, leading to an abundance of tenuous lore theories that ring, for want of a better word, decidedly hollow. The recent DLC also did little to fill in the blanks. By this stage, you're probably wondering how anything with which I can find this much fault can still be my game of the year. It's a fair question, and I think the answer lies in the distance between other games and the Dark Souls series. Because even in a Dark Souls game where I find the combat much too intense for its own good, there is still nothing quite like the perfectly timed evasion that allows you to backstab a towering foe. Because even in a Dark Souls game with too many forgettable levels, there's still the teasing approach and eventual infiltration of the Cathedral of the Deep, the sight of the giants and the rafters, and the knowledge that you will have to master this extraordinary environment. And because even in a Dark Souls game with lore that feels like it was written by a bunch of different people at once, none of whom ever really spoke to each other, there are still individual stories like Oseros, and Prince Lothric, and the Lord of Hollows questline, which do heft and pathos and a bewitching sort of darkness with virtuosic skill. So while Dark Souls 3 may be a disappointment to me in a lot of ways, that's mostly because this is a series that I have to weigh against incredibly high expectations. Dark Souls 3 didn't meet them in the end, but even a bad Dark Souls game is better than almost everything else, and in many ways, a bad Dark Souls game is even more fascinating than a good one.
IO Interactive went back to the drawing board in 2016. It had been four years since Hitman Absolution came out, a game that was critically panned by critics and fans alike for steering too far away from the Hitman formula. Although disclosure, I kind of liked Absolution. Anyways, at the same time, Square Enix Montreal were still in the early stages of planning their own AAA take on the series. Fast forward four years later, Square Enix Montreal were refocused onto mobile games, putting out the popular Go series of games, which included its own take on Hitman. IO, meanwhile, decided to take a look at what made Hitman great in the first place. What it fell upon was, after some scepticism pre-launch, and a change of release plan, a few times in fact, not only the best Hitman game since 2006 Blood Money, but also possibly in itself, the best Hitman game ever. In a moment, you'll hear from VG247's Alex Donaldson on it. But first, here's Dan Teasdale of 100 foot robot golf developer No Goblin on why Hitman is his favourite game of 2016. Good to have you back. Hi, my name is Dan Teasdale, and my favorite game of 2016 is Hitman, the all caps one word 2016 experience of Hitman that came out this year. Uh, I'm actually a, uh, I'm a relatively big Hitman fan, I was a, a big fan of Blood Money, um, and the last Hitman experience I had was Hitman Absolution, which was terrible. Uh, and was basically a, a, like a, a linear cover shooter where you were shooting sexy nuns for some reason. I didn't feel like uh, I didn't feel like a Hitman game, and I feel like uh, Hitman fans and myself to a degree uh, were kind of thought that Blood Money was going to be the peak forever of of the Hitman franchise of of this game where you have this small contained sandbox of an area, and you have to go in and find a way to hit some men in this area uh and you could do whatever like it, it, obviously you couldn't do whatever you wanted but you had all this huge rich tool set of things you could do to take people out and so for a long time yeah it was i thought blood money was going to be it and then uh hitman 2016 comes out and somehow becomes a better hitman game than blood money which is like it's an astounding achievement to start off with just alone that you can that's the top hitman game in the franchise but coming from such a low from Absolution up to this is just ridiculous. Uh, and like a lot of the people, a lot of, like I see a lot of people talking about Hitman as well as like their game of the year. And a big thing they talk about is, oh, it's just the, the fact that it was episodic and that you had to spend time in each of these areas because you couldn't just go to the next level was a big thing. Uh, but for me, that was like the, the, the least most important part of why this game worked so well. Uh, the just the like for a start just the feel of everything in the game feels incredibly tight which is actually kind of rare for a hitman game like all of those all of the previous hitman games pre-absolution felt kind of janky and loose uh and felt 
like you, you kind of forgave it just because there was so much you were doing in this space. Uh, but the, like they were they were very loose games, and so going to a game like uh, current Hitman, uh, which I wish had a better name, so I didn't have to, I could identify it. But going to going to Hitman, where it's uh, I mean everything feels a lot tighter, and the control like even playing on a joypad feels a lot tighter than the old Hitman's felt on a mouse and keyboard uh, is incredible, and just like the amount of attention to stuff, like just throwing. Uh, just throwing something at someone's head and just having this incredibly satisfying thunk. Probably the most satisfying thunk of something hitting something else in video games is, like, I've been playing it for nine months now, and it's just, like, the most amazing, just visceral feeling. Uh, but on top of that is, I think, what, what the real thing that makes Hitman shine, in that uh, you go into a level and these opportunities come up which basically guide you through different paths that you can take which solves one of the big problems in blood money of not really knowing where to go or not knowing where all the secrets were uh, and then completing those feeds you into the challenge system which gives you this amazing like achievements like system of uh different ways to finish the level and different uh different tactics and art opportunities that you can do that are uh, maybe a little harder uh, and then those feed into escalations where you're basically doing a, a increasingly harder set of challenges uh, but around this one area. So you're basically learning this one chunk of the map over and over again, uh, going into master challenges, uh, which are basically that, that an insane high level of doing it with a specific disguise. Uh, then like feeding into like the pinnacle of that being uh, elusive targets and contracts uh, is ridiculous. Uh, Elusive targets, I'm just going to call out very specifically because it kind of does this thing that I think a lot of designers want to do but never pull off, which is uh, one-off content that feels good. And so elusive targets are basically a target is up for a certain amount of time. It's usually about seven days these days. Uh, you can only have one shot, one opportunity to take a target out. Uh, if you die or the other target dies, you can no longer restart. Uh, and yeah, you can't play it ever again once you beat it. And like all of these usually feel terrible once they're in a game, but they've made it feel they've made it feel like a spectator sport to the point where uh, like Panda and I actually stream out elusive targets whenever they are now, and we have this like small audience that follows us as a, as our hitman guy who we call Chefo because he always plays as a chef uh, goes through and uh, and hits men uh, like does it and it's like this kind of kind of event television, which is really weird to be saying for uh, for a hitman game. Uh, and I'm almost about to run out of time, but all of this stuff, the feed from opportunities up to elusive targets, the, uh, is just this amazing, like almost perfect, uh, meta system for just pulling people into what is probably almost definitely the best Hitman game, better than Blood Money, official A plus seal of approval, uh, Hitman 2016 is my game of the year for 2016 and may even be my game of the generation so far. Hello there, I'm Alex Donaldson and I am a features writer on VG247.com and the publisher of RPGsite.net and my favourite game of 2016 is Hitman.
I didn't expect this going into this year. There were some really high-profile, important releases this year that mean a lot to me. There was Street Fighter V and Final Fantasy XV, two entries in my favourite franchises of all time. But in spite of that competition, Hitman really came along and blindsided me. It wasn't just the competition that made it a surprise, it's that in the run-up to its release, Hitman looked like a bit of a mess. They were chopping and changing the release format and all sorts of things about the game, and it really all just looked rather worrying. But they nailed it, they got it right. The thing that I really love about Hitman in particular is that it really nails down that feeling, the importance of repetition in video games. And what I really mean by that is, when I was a kid, one of my favourite things to do in games like Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and Knuckles or Super Metroid was to learn those games inside out and then use that knowledge to break them in weird and interesting ways. Shortcuts, or in the case of Metroid, sequence breaks, cutting entire pieces of the game out. Hitman isn't just possible for that stuff. Hitman embraces it. It wants you to do that stuff. The entire game is built around these sandbox levels that really what it wants you to do is learn. It's here that the release schedule begins to make sense as well. By releasing in episodes individually, what you get is time to learn each level rather than you play Paris and then you immediately move on to Sapienza, then you immediately move on to Marrakesh. You actually play Paris and let it ruminate and play it again in a different way and then maybe there's some live content that you play and this all adds up to create a really, really cool, unique experience. I also should mention that, as I mentioned earlier, live content because when I say live content out loud, it sort of makes me wince a little bit. It sounds like a horrible corporate thing. It sounds specifically like a AAA developer and publisher trying to force mobile gaming concepts into their big budget release. Except Hitman's done it right. The live content really adds to the game. The fact that it's limited actually makes it better. It makes it more interesting. The elusive targets, which you only get one shot at doing, are fantastic because the whole idea of them is you get one shot, one opportunity, mom's spaghetti, all that. But the big deal is that's where you test the knowledge you build by replaying the main mission targets over and over again. And that's really clever. You know, on top of all that, the game has a real sense of fun. I mean, this is a game where you can push a toilet onto a man's head to kill him, or you can dress up as a scarecrow and scare people and use that to unnerve somebody so he goes and smokes some cigarettes that you laced with LSD or whatever. There's a lot of really cool and interesting things about how, how it works, but also it just knows how to have fun, you know? And I think that's something that is often all too missing from games. They can be often be too clinical too serious and hitman just says you know this is a series about a bald man who chokes people out and dresses up as people and nobody ever seems to really recognize that he's not the person that they think he is and so they have a bit of fun with it they get a bit silly with it and so i adore it the big thing to me is really that while this is very much still hitman and still recognizable as the same series that came before this also feels like something fresh and new thanks to the way they've implemented the game and also the fact that they're now going to move on to Season 2 next year, but keep the same framework and the same unlocks carry forward and all that, that's really interesting also in itself. It's exciting, it's different, and it's a bloody good video game. I have some honourable mentions for the likes of Overwatch and Street Fighter V and XCOM 2 in particular, but Hitman... There was really never any other choice for me. It's a tremendously fun game. It's very special and I can't wait to see where it goes in 2017. So yeah, 
Hitman is my game of the year for 2016. I never would have predicted that, but there you have it. We're starting to approach the end of the special episode of My Favourite Game. We have one last major game to discuss, but before we do, here's a few honourable mentions some of our guests brought up in their discussion of their favourite game this year. First, here's Dan Pierce. Final Fantasy XV is a game that I've been looking forward to since I first drew pictures of Noctis in the back of my schoolbook when I was 13. Uh, getting to play it finally and hang out with its four main characters was a wonderful experience and one that I think is going to stick with me. Doom completely bowled me over with how good it was. Mirror's Edge Catalyst had some real high points. Hitman exceeded all of my expectations, and each new episode was just incredibly exciting. I don't know if it counts, but the one Tamriel update for Elder Scrolls Online has legitimately turned it into a fantastic game. Uh, one that's best when played like it's the sixth Elder Scrolls game and not an MMO at all. It's huge, it's charming, it's often funny, and it has some of the best quest writing and design I've seen in a while. Discovering that The Elder Scrolls Online actually became really, really good was one of the best gaming experiences I had all year, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Next, Matthew Reynolds has a special shout-out for a worthy follow-up to Braid, and why this year has been an amazing year for puzzle games. If you wanted a second game from me, then uh, The Witness is another one I'd highly recommend. Which is obviously a uh, very different game, but at the same time it shares some com- some, some comparisons and parallels in terms of uh, you know, it lacks overt storytelling, but he's quite rich in atmosphere and has some really excellent puzzle design. So, uh, I guess for fans of those sorts of experiences, then 2016 hasn't been a bad year. Next, Andrew Smith on the biggest gaming phenomenon of the year. Special shout out though to Pokemon Go, the first Pokemon game I've played since Pokemon Snap. Uh, the first Pokemon Go, uh, Pokemon game you could say I've actually played at all. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, to my first proper sit-down Pokemon game being uh, the Sun or Moon on uh, on my 3DS, but played a lot of Pokemon Go. Absolutely love it, and what a what a moment for games and society! Like genuinely, a bit of a watershed. I think there is, you know, reason to say that the industry was one thing and now it's another since Pokemon Go. Catherine Woolley next with a few mentions of her own. Firstly, I wanted to give a shout out to The Witness, which I only started playing recently. But the design of some of the puzzles is stunning. I haven't finished it yet, but any time I'm not playing it, I'm thinking of how to solve the puzzles I got stuck on. And I can't wait to see where it goes. Secondly, I absolutely loved playing Overcooked with friends this year. Each time starting out as a mega hectic kitchen of shouting orders and quietly screaming because of everything going insanely wrong. Which then from a replay on the same level is a smooth, quiet orderly experience you wouldn't think the same people were playing and then lastly unravel which was an early release of the year which i feel was left out by a lot of people potentially 
The crafty nature of the game was what drew me in, and it's such a touching story and atmosphere that the game creates. Uh, sometimes the puzzles aren't great, um, and flying around is not fun. If you've played it, you might know the level I'm talking about. Um, but I love picking up every now and again, playing levels that I haven't finished yet. Um, and I even made my own Yarny. It's such a nice little game. Finally, Tom Francis with a game that he talks as much about as he did Dishonored 2, to his own admission, in a dramatic departure for the Far Cry series. I'm going to give an honourable mention to um, Far Cry Primal. Uh, because I think that might be... Yeah, I think that is my second favourite game of the year, and I bet no one else mentions it. <laughs> but it got weirdly ignored. It was sort of seen almost as, like, um, DLC for Far Cry 4, like, you know, the way um, Far Cry Blood Dragon was for Far Cry 3. But it's, uh, I think, probably the best Far Cry game. Um, it is still basically about taking down outposts, which is always my favourite thing in Far Cry 3, 4, and this. Um... And those are some of the best stealth gameplay ever. Um, I, it's open world, and so you're approaching these um, outposts from any angle you like. And you scout them out, you tag enemies as you do in the, um, the other Far Cry games. And that process of like scouting out and coming up with a plan and figuring out how you're going to get to... Uh, how you're going to pick off these enemies one by one without alerting the whole camp is um, incredibly like methodical and creative and um, compelling and tense, incredibly tense. Um, and they're, they're so well designed this time. Like, they're, so many of them are like set into cliffs or something, so you can climb all the way, you can go, go all the way the long way around to get to the top of the cliff to scout everything out from above. Um, there are sort of like vines to climb up and uh, secret routes to kind of get better scouting positions. And then um, the process of taking down these camps has always been mostly about like for me, I would always do it with the bow and the knife, even in Far Cry 3 and 4, which are modern day. Um, and in Far Cry Primal, it's set in primeval times and so uh, there are only bows and knives and uh, like throwing spears which is uh, a great addition to that set um, you have to, again it's a game where you play it in your own style but um, uh, I strongly recommend not using the magic psychic owl um, and not using the pets pets are great to like tame and run around the, the wilderness with but when you take down an outpost you shouldn't use them because they make it way too easy um, and you also can't totally control whether they are stealthy or not um, and so it's like the best outpost um, Far Cry and outpost is the best thing about Far Cry and it's also astonishingly beautiful, just mind-blowingly beautiful. I don't think I've ever played a game that made me stop and take so many screenshots and just gawp at what I was seeing. It's just incredible, and it's not just like artistically incredible, but technologically incredible, and those two things being fused in an amazing way, like the things they do with the quality of light and mist to make to really like conjure that kind of um, prehistoric feel is just amazing. Um, and there's one other thing that's amazing about it. I'm going to talk about this for longer than I am about Dishonored 2. Um, because this one needs more defending. Um, it is absolutely teeming with life. And they've kind of done this a little bit with all the Far Cry's... Well, actually, not Far Cry 1, but Far Cry 2, 3, 4, and this. Um, all have some kind of like ecosystem going on with these animals running around. And they've got better at it with each one, quite quietly. And this is the one where it's just absolutely crawling with life. And you can just sit... I, in fact, I did just sit in a valley and just watch it unfold for like 40 minutes. Um, packs of wolves hunting deer. And then um, groups of tribesmen... Uh, encountering the wolves and getting to fights with them. Then a bear shows up and destroys them all. And then uh, in the fight, uh, one of the 
caveman throws or fires like a fire arrow at the bear and sets it alight and now there's a bear that's on fire running through the jungle setting fire to the jungle and you can see the jungle burning other animals and them running off it's just amazing to watch that unfold and to crawl through that place at night is just a totally um, incredible experience just terrifying um, and it's more than any other game I can think of it feels wild and in a last minute edition in a brief clip here's question games Jordan Thomas to tell you why Darkest Dungeon the game that you're hearing the music from right now is his favorite game of 2016 Jordan Thomas and my game of the year is Darkest Dungeon I adore the way that everything is a trade-off in Darkest Dungeon. All power has a price. It combines the turn-based, party-oriented combat that I deeply love with a sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos uh, that seeps into everything, down to the item design. Your characters slowly crack under the stress of actually adventuring in a subterranean lair and slowly become more like the monsters they're fighting. I highly recommend it. In spring 2006, well, in Europe anyways, the game previously codenamed Nico in Shadow of the Colossus released for the PlayStation 2, following up as a spiritual successor to Eco, which released 5 years earlier. It would take 10 years and 2 different hardware generations for Shadow's follow-up to arrive. It'd go through numerous stages of development hell, development trouble, and even several teases and leaks to get here one of which happened just before its official reveal. In May 2009, a proof-of-concept teaser was leaked that would show what to expect from a follow-up to Shadow of the Colossus from its development team. A month later, at E3, it finally happened. Now it's my pleasure to give you a sneak peek at another upcoming title being developed exclusively for PlayStation 3. It comes from the wildly creative minds of Fumito Ueda, whose previous games, Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, have as much heart and soul to them as they do action and adventure. Here's a new glimpse at Wade-san's next masterpiece, the third title in the trilogy, known as The Last Guardian. Thank <laughs> you. 
Our first game tonight has been long anticipated by the gaming community. It is conceived as a poetic story of adventure and friendship, heroism and companionship. I'm personally proud and incredibly thrilled to introduce this long-awaited game. After a decade's wait since Shadow of the Colossus and a five year wait between its initial release date and its actual release date, the actual amount of time that passed between Eco's release and Shadow of the Colossus released, The Last Guardian finally came out. And after so many ups and downs in its development, including speculation on whether such development would continue, development staff departing Sony and whether it could live up to said hype after so long, the question was, could it? At least for two people, it did. Me being one of them. 
because The Last Guardian is my favourite game of 2016. Finishing the game and when the credits were rolling, I had full on tears in my eyes and actually properly crying at how the game ended. But in the same way Uncharted 4 did earlier this year, The Last Guardian had honestly one of the best endings in a game this year. Quite honestly, it also had one of the best endings in a game full stop. A lot has happened to the world in the seven years since the game was first announced, as well as to the team behind it. Team Eco as the collective is no more within Japan's studio in the same way Team Silent effectively broke up after Silent Hill 4. Fumito Ueda left Sony and founded his own studio in Gen Design, and the game transferred from its originally stated plan of a PlayStation 3 exclusive due for release in time for Christmas 2011 to being a PlayStation 4 exclusive released in time for Christmas 2016. And yes, the game does at times show its age a bit to a degree and could be argued in some sense it's a PS3 remaster for the PS4. But biggest of all, yes, the camera and frame rate do hamper the game. But whereas with any other game I would rightfully slaughter this for, with such bad camera issues and frame rate issues, and it is still something worth criticising here, with The Last Guardian I didn't really care as much. Mainly because the experience overrided any negative experience I had with the camera and frame rate. Playing the game, all I could do was just coo and call Trico as he pawed away at a barrel in the most adorable fashion. Just laugh at how petrified he was of water before he'd have to jump in and make a massive splash and how at one point just be impressed of how he'd spear enemy soldiers that he'd look out for you as the boy to that extent. Look, I can talk to you about the game's amazing art direction. It's utterly incredible score, it's fantastic puzzles and great set pieces. But truly, the game star of the show is, and in hindsight always has been, Trico. There have been many games before that have raised the bar in AI companions and companionship stories, but, and while I realise what I'm about to say verges some hyperbole, I don't think I've ever encountered a companion as real in a game as Trico. His behaviourisms, the way he'll look out for you after gaining his trust, you as the player to develop the patience of a saint to get him to follow your orders. Basically, he is the living embodiment of a pet realised in a game to an unreal impressive level, and what should be, and is for me, an achievement in AI and character design in games. For me, Trico and the bond I developed with him during the game is what defines the experience of The Last Guardian for me. Credit to Fumito Ueda and the development team at Japan Studio as well as Gen Design, plus the Sony higher-ups for keeping the faith in the game after so long when any other publisher would have cut their losses and bailed. Because 10 years since development started, The Last Guardian was worth the wait. And that is why it is my favourite game of 2016. But I'm not the only one.
As I just said, I'm not the only one who thinks The Last Guardian is their favourite game of 2016. But this needs a proper introduction first before we get into it. My favourite game has been off for a while, since the end of Season 4 in August of this year. And we're just in the process of starting up Season 5 for early in the new year. In fact, we have already recorded one such episode for Season 5. And it's from the person from that episode you're about to hear from now. We'll have more details for you on Season 5 a lot closer to the time ahead of its launch. But for now, with one final contribution to this special episode, here's a guest that you'll hear during Season 5 of My Favourite Game. The Fulbright Company's Steve Gaynor. Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, and my game of the year for 2016 is The Last Guardian. I was uh, introduced to Fumito Ueda's uh, games back when Ico came out uh, in 2001. I had just moved to Oregon from Florida when I was, you know, uh, I had just finished my first year in college. And um, I think, like a lot of people, Ico really stood out for its tone and the presence of its world and the relationship between the two characters um, that the, the player character and the companion character in that game. And the last guardian really continues a lot of what was unique to that game 15 years ago. And I think that it's a testament to the fact that, you know, despite the, the last guardian being a huge technical achievement, despite Trico being just this incredible living creature that that you're interacting with in this really authentic way on screen and the fact that you know the the environments are so much more sweeping and there's there's all this advancement that's gone on in the craft of just what you're experiencing on screen despite all that the fact is that these feelings of you know being in the presence of this other character and feeling a bond grow between them through the play of the game itself and the way that 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 relationship is depicted through actions uh, and through the characters reactions to each other and just the restraint that the entire depiction of this world and the people in it and the way that you exist within it, um, being so quiet and confident and otherworldly. Um, it's just a, a, a place that is unique unto itself. And so, you know, just being back in that space 15 years after Ico, 10 years after Shadow of the Colossus, and realizing that Ueda's games bring something consistently that we need you know that 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 no one else is doing that whenever we encounter it it connects with us in i feel like this very deep way you know this way that did make me feel emotional and did make me feel moved and between the the technical bravura of trico you know moving all over the world and being this incredibly complex uh, creation and the player character being able to climb on him while he's climbing on everything, and just kind of my mind being boggled by the complexity of the problems that they decided to solve. And also having that effort put towards something that I feel like is this really crucial, yeah, very humane 
emotional expression of these characters caring for each other and the game being about compassion and dedication and things that remind us of what is important. It was an incredible experience for me to, to have and just the kind of the kind of thing that I really find inspiring to know that games are capable of being. So that's why The Last Guardian is my game of the year for 2016. Thanks. So, I had planned the end of my favourite game special there. Say all the thank yous and all that there was a small epilogue of looking back at 2016 and looking forward to 2017 stuff. Persona 5, Zelda Breath of the Wild, etc, etc, etc. But, I have to talk of 2016 at large and gaming and how much it has been a driving force in ways this year you can't even begin to imagine. Personally and from a wider perspective, in a, a massive, massive way. As I record this, it's been nearly a day since it was announced Carrie Fisher had passed away. And it's something that really broke my heart. Um, Carrie Fisher was obviously Princess Leia but in Star Wars, but she was more than that. She was an incredibly witty woman. Someone who was open and advocated for mental health awareness. And that was something huge of me, and, I, and it's something I'll get into in a moment. But basically, jumping back into the Star Wars stuff, because that will be a huge part of her legacy anyways. This can't be emphasised enough, in that her role in Star Wars as Princess Leia slash General Ghana in the new set of films helped play a massive part in what Star Wars, what made Star Wars so incredible four decades ago, and even now in the new trilogy. 
from The Force Awakens to Episode 8 coming next year. Besides the fact these were incredible films for their time, and even now, the one thing that connects Star Wars and games is one thing. Escapism. They have helped provide escapism for people during bad times, and that for the briefest periods in their life, good or bad, they could picture being part of those worlds. This year, in a year in what feels like the world has been encapsulated in darkness, with fear, uncertainty, and our heroes passing away, gaming has provided an immense amount of escapism, such has been the quality of the output this year, from triple A indies. Regardless of platform or genre though, you're bound to find something to find that escapism in. For me, I've said before on this show and elsewhere how much games helped me during the hardest period of my life, when my mother passed away during the latter end of 2014, and the escapism games provided, especially Metal Gear Solid 3. This year though has been incredibly tough for me, perhaps even more so than 2014. Until late September, though this was something I was aware of even then, I was fighting undiagnosed depression and anxiety, which exploded big time in 2016. In fact, it was why you didn't get any more episodes of my any more episodes of my favorite game after season four, despite a small mini season of episodes being planned in between seasons four and five. I'm on the mend now, and despite a significant relapse in early November, early December. I'm getting there in the end. And I feel I'm in a much, much better place to provide Season 5 of my favourite game next year. I'll get into more details about that in the new year. But when times got as bad as they did, games were a massive crux for me, and were a positive mental influence on me in numerous ways. They provided an incredible amount of escapism and joy during dark periods in ways I can happily tell you about this year. In fact, you know what? I'm going to. The fun exploration of Mirror's Edge Catalyst's gameplay. The joy of shooting demons using Doom's standard shotgun. Being impressed at the diversity, the interpretations and personalities of Watch Dogs 2's main set of characters. Driving the Australian Outback in Forza Horizon 3 to another incredible soundtrack. Cause and effect in Titanfall 2 and its incredible level and gameplay design. Enough said. Finishing inside in one sitting and how that was one of the creepiest experiences I ever had playing a game. Playing Res for the first time and doing so in its entirety in PlayStation VR, with Area 5 and Area X being standard moments for me, particularly the latter in PSVR. It was something akin to a religious experience in my opinion. Playing Uncharted 4 and realising you may not see this kind of polish in a game for a very, very long time. Plus. It's an incredible epilogue. Playing Overwatch one day from midnight to 8am near non-stop one June or July morning and knowing that not one multiplayer game has had that kind of pull over me ever for the amount of time I spent with it because it was that fucking fun. Yeah, that was probably a bit unhealthy but you get my point. And the emotional bond I felt that I had conceived with Trico in The Last Guardian and fully in tears at 6am on a Friday morning at its ending pre and post epilogue. That's the pulling power of games. In the same way Star Wars has had over the decades, games, their stories, their world building, their characters, everything else, have had incredible overtures to be able to help us escape from whatever bad stuff that has gone on, or had gone on, in someone's life at a certain point. In my lifetime it feels like there have been three things that have provided that sort of escapism, 
in major, major ways. Star Wars, Harry Potter, and games. I'd cite numerous specific examples on the gaming side, but the truth is, games are so broad and diverse, and this is what makes them so special, that citing merely one franchise, regardless of industry legacy and influence, would be doing our medium a misjustice. Although that being said, you do have to look at what Pokemon Go has done this year for gaming in 2016. It brought people out of their homes, it got them the exercise, and it helped people with their mental health. In a year which has seen a lot of hate, fear, darkness and uncertainty, games have been there in a way very few mediums and our forms truly are. And if there's one way I can sum up 2016 in games, the only thing this year has done right and what has been otherwise an anus horribus of a shitastic year that can drown in the ocean and die for all I care, it'd be in one word. Heroic. Because the world could always do with more heroes after all. Even if they are video games. And with that, thank you for listening to my favourite game of 2016. And for listening to my favourite game in 2016. My thanks to the dozen or so guests who made this special possible. Andrew Smith, Dan Pierce, Caitlin Tremblay, Tom Francis, Ed Stern, Chris Avalon, Christian Donlan, Catherine Woolley, Matthew Reynolds, Tom Bramwell, Dan Teasdale, Alex Donaldson, Jordan Thomas, and Steve Gaynor. Special thanks also to Alex Moyet, Kristen Nillman, and Karina Abbott. Stay tuned for when Season 5 rolls out by following us on Twitter at MFG Podcast and by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash my favorite game pod. We'll see you in 2017 for season five. Until then, have a fantastic new year. Bye bye. <laughs>